In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. Hello and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. I'm your host, Dr Kay Eyre. We live in the age of the brain. With so much written about the impact of childhood trauma on the brain, how do educators put this science to use in the classroom? Today we have the privilege of speaking with Dr Becky Bailey about her groundbreaking Conscious Discipline program. Dr Becky Bailey is an award-winning author, renowned educator, an internationally recognised expert in childhood education and developmental psychology. She is the creator of Conscious Discipline, which has impacted an estimated 15.8 million children, while inspiring and training more than 3 million educators and caregivers. Becky will be interviewed by my colleague, Dr Govind Krishnamurthy, and myself. I hope you find this interview useful. Hi everyone, welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy and I'm here as always with Dr. Kay. Hi Kay. Gavin, how are you? I'm great. I'm really excited because we have with us tonight Dr. Becky Bailey. Hi Becky, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so look, we might jump right into it. Um, Becky, did you want to tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to working with educators? Well, I've always been a teacher. Uh, actually, I started off thinking I was going to be a medical doctor, but my brother was a little older than me and I thought he was crazy. So I ended up uh, being a teacher. And uh, when I was getting my PhD, I did... Um, a little internship with a, a toddler school actually. And I, when I went to the toddler school, and this was way back in the day, uh, I went in there and I thought, oh my gosh, if, if we treat dogs like this with these ratios and this crowdedness, you can see we're gonna, it wouldn't even work with a, a mammal. Mm. And we are mammals. So uh, that kind of spurred me and it really took till I was getting my PhD to, to lean into how does the brain work and, and how are we going to uh, use optimal environments and strategies so that we can all grow to our maximum potential. And also, I've had some trauma in my life with a car accident and a few other things. So I was always a teacher. I always wanted to be a teacher. And I always was leaning towards the, the marginalized children. And, uh, you know, I grew up with civil rights and all that. So uh, that's just kind of who I am and what I came to do. That sounds great. Um, so could you tell us about the Conscious Discipline program, Becky? It's um, incredibly popular now and so many people have read and heard about it. Um, how do you explain what it is and how it sets, uh, how it's, um, sets itself apart from other programs? Well, I can give you, the, I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you the uh, kind of the official academic version of it. 
which I call it, it, it a comprehensive brain-based self-regulation program that systemically combines social emotional learning, school co culture, and discipline into kind of a systemic whole. Um, now I'm going to tell you how I really explain it. That sounds good. And I use the term uh, discipline as something uh, like you are disciplined enough to maintain your diet. You're disciplined enough to uh, set and achieve goals. So that's my form of, of definition of discipline. It's not punishment. So I believe uh, with conscious discipline, we're trying to help people of all ages, adults and children, be disciplined enough to set and achieve their goals despite distractions, conscious enough to know you're off track, and willing enough, that means loved enough, cared for enough, belonging enough to come back to your path to live your highest values. So that's what it's about. And that's kind of my nutshell example. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'll get Kay to jump in to ask you um, some questions about the program itself. But I was really um, curious about the way you explained discipline. It struck me that it actually taps into lots of different things that are in persistence and grit and, you know, all those different things that people talk about. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, those things don't exist, exist in isolation, do they? they it, you know, you can persist and have discipline with things when you actually cared for and, and someone's taking interest in your persistence with the task. Um, and so that's a really interesting way in which you describe that. Yeah. And also I think that you can persist uh, and be, uh, you know, vigilant and being a, a serial killer too. So you need to be, <laughs> no, you need to have that consciousness to know you, you're, you're going down the wrong trail. Mm. And, and that's a, piece because that consciousness implies that we have got to have a very integrated brain and get to the higher centers so that we have some reflection, uh, which is the key of, of consciousness. So you can be very vigilant doing very uh, poor things. Yeah. And I guess, Becky, too, that's, that's the flip side of how discipline um, is viewed traditionally, isn't it, as punishment, that that whole consciousness is not a not usually an element of it it's something that's done to people to extinguish their behavior sort of thing yes you know and what i say is and this is kind of a quote that's kind of hung about and certain that i like uh, is discipline is not something you do to children it's something you develop within them yes and yes. once you flip that uh, definition uh, then it's a whole different ballgame. Uh, the trick is getting people to flip the definition. Because <laughs> mm, we actually have discipline very explicitly in our, in our um, policies, you know. It, it's used, the word discipline, as a safe, supportive, disciplined school environment is one of the um, headings of one of our policies in our education department. And, yes, that's, I think the explanation around it is what's missing. It's assumed that everybody comes to that term when they read it with the same understanding and it's not. Oh, it's not. It's <laughs> far, far from the truth. But, yes, it's sometimes I think it's assumed that, yeah, what it means. Yeah, mm. it's very hard because, I, uh, you know, 
that requires some transformational change, which means asking people to release that deep-seated belief we have on, on, on punishment and yes. how we think it's so effective. And if I don't do it, uh, somehow I'm failing uh, my duty as a parent or a teacher. So that's so deep-rooted in the United States. I don't know about Australia, but that's just like almost in everyone's DNA. So pulling that out from just the mil millennium of uh, use of it and still today uh, as you watch our countries. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, and, and, and certainly in the United States, it's, oh my gosh, it's a mess. Yeah. Um, you spoke about uh, how the program draws on neuroscience and how it's brain-based, uh, Becky. How, how would you explain what trauma-sensitive practices are? How would you view it, particularly in the school context? I think if you do understand the brain and what helps the brain uh, develop op op optimally and what inhibits its development, once you have that understanding, then the question is getting the how-to with it. And I don't think you can get to that understanding with a how-to without being trauma-sensitive. Uh, so to me, if you're brain-based with some why, the science behind it, and a how-to, uh, you can't miss the mark unless you're just picking and choosing little random phrases. So to me, uh, the schools I see in the United States, regardless of what kind of program they do, but the ones who have educated teachers with a, a, a more understanding of uh, the brain and the states we get into and how to maneuver from one state to another, I think that it's almost a byproduct of that. Yeah. And of course you have to understand the traumas, but the specific traumas I have found that, uh, once you get a defensive brain instead of an engaging brain, mm. uh, a lot of the strategies are similar in how do you uh, help a student drop that defense, mm. drop those ad adaptive skills for that defense, uh, are very similar regardless of the specific trauma per se. Now there are more when I'm, when you go into specific traumas, but that gets to me in mental health, mm -hmm. uh, more, more of that. But for a teacher, I think a teacher needs this basic information all the time. It should need in every university and, uh, should be bound together. My degrees, my PhD is in, uh, education and developmental psychology. So I, I never could understand how we separated any of that to begin with. And that was back in 1970. My PhD was in 79. So I was trying to combine things people hadn't thought about yet or why we separated them. I'm not sure. There you go. You've been a pioneer for quite a while now. <laughs> 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 my goodness. Um, yeah, go on, Kay. No, I was just going to say that would have been um, quite a difficult, I would imagine, quite a difficult groundbreaking perspective to have even questioned why did we separate them in the first place and largely they're still separate so yeah wow and that's what le led me actually to leave the university system right uh, yep ultimately in night and i think that, that was 1999 i was like we've got to go a different route 
So 20 years ago, uh, trauma sensitive wasn't, didn't exist in, in the United States at least. And Not. so for the last uh, 15 years, I feel like, uh, uh, at least over here, I've been kind of pushing a ball uphill. And now in the last five, six over here, you know, now it's catching wave and, you know, and, and rolling down the hill. And sadly in the United States, I'm going off on a little tangent here, but sadly in the United States, uh, we have people that follow the money. So then now the big educational companies are making little uh, kits, you know, a little puppet and a couple of videos and, um, showing a 30 minute movie or talk on, on Monday about how we need to be respectful. And then, you know, and then putting uh, screaming at kids on Tuesday about shutting up. So it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult journey over here. Yeah. The, the school wide piece is such an important um, part of this. Uh, and I'd be really interested to hear more about that, Becky, but I was just thinking about, um, this idea of children having a defensive brain. And I wondered if there was one or two things that you think that teachers need to know about how the brain works, particularly in times of stress for students. What would be one of those one or two things that you would leave them with, do you think? Okay, so I'm going to take that and broaden it out, if that's all right with you. Yeah, so uh, uh, in conscious discipline, I just use a, a very... Uh, simple brain model simple as but yet accurate enough to apply to inter, to to create interventions from so uh, basically saying like many others the brain needs safety connection and problem solving in social settings because it's a social brain so interesting enough uh when we work with typically uh developing children or in uh, with an engaging brain we i ask children uh, teachers to think about changing their job description you know my job is to keep you safe not my job is to make you behave is to keep you safe enough so you can learn and then we have to go into what a safe enough means from a teacher's perspective certainly i have to manage my own emotions mm -hmm. so there's a lot to go into uh for the teacher side of that but with children with a defensive brain Generally, safe is not a word they're familiar with on any biological, neurological, or psychological way. Their life has not been safe. So what I have found is if you kind of flip the brain over, you reach those kids because the goal is to get a connection. The goal is to get a relationship. You reach children with a defensive brain through their successes. And so the more you can notice their success, all successes and if they can't read write or do anything at this point they might can work on a skateboard they might have something they do in their life so you have to go through success to get to connection and then connection into safety so the defensive brain to me is kind of uh upside down and once we understand that their whole brain is uh geared to adapt their behaviors to keep them safe, not to learn reading, then we have to flip it over to reach in. And the goal is how do you reach a relationship resistant child who is mm -hmm. going to uh, push you away at any given time? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that helped. Oh, so no. I would, 
teachers, I would say, for children who have a, a, a feel like they are defending against life, um, by and they tell you by their behaviors, they're going to shut down, act, uh, fight, 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 flight, or shut down on you uh, at all times. Um, then start with noticing anything they do successful. And when I say noticing, that means not judging it, not say you did this well. You, uh, uh, you, you held that door open so uh, Kevin could come in. Hmm. Way to be helpful or way to go. Um, so you have to start with their name or you, describe what they did, and then you can tag it if you want. But it has to start with you or their name. And, uh, and that's what I mean by noticing. So there's two skills in that, noticing the success, as opposed to you did, you're very good at skateboarding. You, you draw wonderful pictures and let's hang them up and show everybody. Or mm -hmm. what a great uh, poem you wrote or song you sang. Uh, it's got to be you, you shared your talents with us by singing something that really touched my heart. Mm -hmm. Mm. different language style. So the noticing is the conscious part of it, helping them become aware of their success. And then once you can do that, then if you can find something in common, truly in common with that child. So that would be my second thing for teachers, find something you have in common. And then after you find something that could be basketball, it, uh, it could be uh, uh rugby, whatever it is that child enjoys or dogs or anything, but you have to truly have it in common. You can't fake it. You can't say, oh, this kid likes basketball. So now I'm going to study up at home and try to make a connection. You have to truly find something that you and that child have in common. And it's kind of like those, um, you know, when you go to a cocktail party or something and you stand around, you don't know anybody. And all of a sudden someone says, oh, uh, I've been to Florida and you go, Oh my gosh, I live in Florida. And, and all of a sudden you have that moment of where the defenses go, that moment of breakthrough. And that's kind of like double Dutch jump rope. You want to jump in with that child through that common thing. And the third thing I would tell teachers is once you get in there, once you can get something in common with this child, then you're going to go for the, the gold, so to speak. You're going to then go to uh, the, parts of a connection that need that the brain needs and that in, uh, involves uh, playful times where you can make eye contact you can actually touch the child playful situation um, and you have to be very present so you're going for a face-to-face -face time after that and once you get to face-to-face -face time and that can be pleasant face-to-face -face time that involves some touch then you start changing that brain and flipping it. Those are the three things I would give to teachers. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm sure Kay has some questions, but I wanted to get in there first and ask you, I really love that distinction you make, um, Becky, between noticing and responding, because I think sometimes uh, the trap I think sometimes teachers fall into, particularly with the way trauma-informed training is done, I think is that they think it's all about just you know, overwhelming compassion and praise and celebration and encouragement. And in fact, a lot of that stuff just becomes too overwhelming um, for kids and it doesn't actually help them feel safe. And the way you describe it, 
you know, even the little things that you were talking about, it talks to a lot about how teachers actually implement a lot of these strategies. Yes, and, and the noticing comes from, you know, I define self-regulation as the ability to notice your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in service of a goal. So it, it's also now, you know, it's a big movement on mindfulness, but this, the noticing, the shifting from judging to noticing is the hardest part for teachers and the most important part. So because to self-regulate, you need uh, two. I mean, I must regulate me. So there's, you know, everybody knows there's, you know, two voices in our head. Um, and so, you know, what are those two? One uh, that can regulate the other if we uh, use our, the higher functions of our brain. So young children, and this is the trick, young children don't have mature inner speech to, you know, sometimes six, seven, eight, and some boys up to nine. So we are their co-regulators for sure. So how do we help co-regulate is by noticing. The child might say, um, you know, I can't read. So the response I would give is you wanted help. When you want help, just raise your hand like this, you know. I all do I make paint pictures and notice a lot raise your hand like this your face is going like this your body's telling me mm. something is just you know something crashed mm. something crashed yeah. and then if they look at me by noticing they'll look at my face often if I go your hand went like this your face is going like this often mm. kids will notice you. they'll look at you they'll make that moment of eye contact and then when they make that moment of eye contact, I can then use their mirror neurons unless they have autism. And I just take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And they are mirror neurons. They'll start slightly breathing so that, that, that they, they think everybody's a tiger. But I want you to know that I, in, in my presence, I'm not the tiger. Yes, you've had many tigers chasing you. But right this moment, I am not it. So I have to soften my face, dilate my pupils. I have to be in your presence, a whole different organism. I can't, I have to control my facial features, but not by controlling them, by becoming the state I want that child to, to be. Yeah, that is really useful and fascinating stuff. I'll let Kai jump in in a minute with any questions or comments you had. But it really struck me, Becky, there's a lot of talk about differentiation, you know, how you uh, differentiate your instruction to suit different students. And it sounds to me as though the whole noticing thing is actually differentiating your response moment to moment, really, based on your observations of the child. Um, I can just almost hear <laughs> teachers saying to me as we're talking, you know, thinking and listening to this about, you know, the challenge of being able to do that with lots of kids within the classroom. And I just wondered what what your response would be for that if, you know, if someone were to say, oh, how on earth do we do this noticing with, you know, 15, 20 children in the class? How is that possible? What would be well, your take on that? Well, um the biggest thing and the hardest part about conscious discipline is it, that it focuses on the adult first and the child second. So if you can't do this with yourself, you certainly can't offer it to children. 
So let me give you an example. Now remember, self-regulation requires two. So if I say to you, or if I say to myself in my head, I go, I am angry. That means there's only one of me here and my name is angry. If I go and I not just go, but if I, I feel angry, there's two. There's a me that's feeling my anger. If I am stupid, there's only one of me here called stupid. If I think I'm stupid, then I have the ability to regulate those thoughts. I have the ability to regulate those emotions. And again, adults don't know how to do this. You listen to them talk. It's always, you made me do this. Don't make me have to. We're always giving our ownership of our upset to other people, so there's no need to regulate it. So I start with the adults and we start practicing with ourselves. And that's what makes it a hard sell. I'll tell you that. And that's what slows down the timeline. So the kids get it like this. The adults take forever uh, because we're changing our own inner speech. We're changing our own ability to regulate ourselves, to notice ourselves, to be mindful of ourselves and to be present in the present moment. Because generally speaking, if you look at kids, who haven't had trauma, they're living in the present. So uh, without the ability to be present with them, we've abandoned them in many forms. So I start with adults, and then I, we practice uh, in my workshops. I just, we actually have circle time, and we practice uh, uh, noticing just to get the right hemisphere of our own brain back in the game, because all we're doing is adding language to nonverbal movements. And that's our right hemisphere. And we've made education such a left hemisphere ordeal that we forgot uh, half of ourselves. So that's that's how I approach it. And it's a tough sale. The teachers who pull it off, even one or two times or three times a day, if you could pull it off, the change is phenomenal. The results are off the chart. Actually, when I'm coaching teachers, I'll stand behind them and they'll, they'll have stuff going on in the class and they'll start kind of trying to organize specific teachers. Now, get them to listen or get them to attend. And then there's some that are way off in uh, uh, their own world. And I'll just give her the words of noticing in her ear and, and watch her face or his face when the whole world in front of her starts to change and children start uh, becoming conscious of their behavior and choosing to change on their own. It's amazing. It's amazing to see. That is so powerful doing that coaching in the class with the teacher. And it sounds like it's a learned skill like anything, such an incredible gift really that you give to the teachers. Kay, did you have any questions for Becky just about her approach and her work with the teachers? I was just wondering, how, I guess for it obviously to be successful, the whole school cohort of staff need to be on board, but I would imagine that that's not always the case. So does sometimes when you are doing, you know, working with the adults as the, as the first step, are there often some people in your workshop that clearly need some convincing that are sort of not, not quite with you, but sort of are there maybe a bit under sufferance and, you know, you sort of get them in the end. Do you ever have 
the feeling that you're not making any ground with some people or do you find that even if they're a bit hesitant at the outset by the time they've engaged and and done the workshops and really listened to the information it's a bit transformational for them uh yes. yes right now in the last five years you know they come in with their arms folded and then you know the, the ahas hit their arms relax and they go through a, a bit of a oh my gosh i've ruined my own children bit and then yes. once they get out the other side of that uh, they're like, this is the best thing that I've ever heard of and it's life changing and it's changed my relationship with my husband, my coworker, my children. And certainly I'm now willing to do the work it takes to change myself and, uh, and my responses and see children different. Now the first 10, 12 years of this, it, it was like uh, water on a rock, you know, with erosion. But now the, I think the, uh, we've come a long way in our own planetary understanding of uh, of uh, of consciousness and mindfulness, and uh, we're more open to it. Now, there's always people that are not, and what I do, what I do is, and this is how we do the process. So, uh, someone hears about us, or because. Uh, I'm a teacher. I'm not a business owner. People, we just answer the phone and do what we can do to be helpful to the world. So um, uh, that was the beginning for the first 15, 16, 17 years. So uh, we, we want to work with those that are willing. So we go and give a broad exposure and I start with the brain. And I start with the three, uh, I break it into states that so we get ourselves into basically three global states, uh, a survival state, an emotional state, or what I call an executive state. So I go through some of the brain and how we need to move from one state to the another. And I try to, and then I give some skills about how we can move or what the brain and the mind, body, brain is more likely to move them from a survival state to emotional state, from an emotional state to a executive state, more likely to move. And, you know, those are the skills that we can do. So we can identify a child's state and we can respond with a skill that's going to help them move up uh, the food chain slightly. Uh, we're going to get up there till we get the brain a little integrated and then we can uh, teach or differentiate instruction at that point. So, um, I start with that and give them a lot of brain information and that seems to help. But anyway, I do the whole bit, give them some skills and then the ones who bubble up, the ones who say, Oh, this makes sense to me. Oh my gosh. Yes. I kind of do this anyway. This is just who I am. Then you take the ones and you work ones in the school. So let's talk into a district or a school. So I give a big workshop for the school, maybe a day or two and uh, then the ones who go, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Then we pull those willing people out. And then we work with those that are willing until we make model classes. And it could be a, a, I work a lot in elementary and early childhood because I think it's, uh, you know, I get the most bang for my buck there. And so it might be a, a first grade teacher or a fifth grade teacher that, and a third grade. That's all I got in the whole school, three teachers. Well, I work with those. Right. And close. And then the others relax their fear. That, uh, so once we get a model classroom or a classroom teacher who's, who's doing enough to prove it works, 
in yep. teacher language, not data and research language. Yes, they see they it happening in front of them. Mm. Right on the playground. They see these kids that no one could reach all of a sudden can eat lunch in the cafeteria and, uh, you know, have skills they've never seen before. Then the others that were kind of on the fence jump on. Now, there's always going to be what I call the naysayers. And ultimately, what I see in the United States is, and, and also, you know, we're in 47 countries. So uh, we see this happening all over. Those teachers at that particular school don't find it fun anymore. And so the naysayers ultimately don't sabotage it or they move to another school. But they're not actively trying to uh, take you down. No, they just don't fit within the culture anymore. So Right, and they move on, you know, just yeah. like changing your neighborhood. The neighborhood, yeah. I, you know, it's not the culture I used to, I'm comfortable in, so I'm going to go live downtown where there's more diversity or something. Sure, yep, thank you. Yeah, sounds like you do a lot of hands-on work, Becky, with uh, the teachers in the classroom. I wondered if there were one or two anecdotes of how the program has worked with kids in the classroom and with teachers that kind of stands out in your brain, uh, you know, in your mind. Um, if you wanted to share kind of some successful stories of that with us. Oh, I, I certainly, I, we've had, uh, we, we started off just teaching one teacher at a time and then word spread. Then we get into schools and now we're in school districts and now we're having states. And this afternoon at two, I'm talking to the, actually the president of Chile, a country, that wants to get it to 12,000 school psychologists. So it's grown massively. But uh, up in South Carolina, there was this uh, one child. I remember him so well, man. He was, he had all kinds of issues and uh, he was known, you know, everybody knew this kid. Everybody looked at their roster and said, oh my gosh, not, you know, not Jeffrey. And, you know, I'll trade you. Uh, if you'll take Jeffrey, I'll take five of your kids. You know, everybody's just like, oh, no, not this one. And uh, so ultimately they started conscious discipline and uh, the DOE, they wanted to suspend this kid and they wanted to expel this kid. I mean, this kid had been in like 10 schools and it was just like, there's nothing we can do. This is just, you've got to get him out of the classroom. He's a danger to himself and others. And he's got to be put in some treatment center and but it was against the law at this in this particular school. So they called the Department of Education for the state. But by the time the Department of Education got down, which is about six months later, he'd been in a conscious discipline classroom. And when they came down, they couldn't discern him from the rest of the kids. So they didn't know which one he was. And that was huge, huge uh, mind step. But I want to give you a, another kind of a funny story. So, Part of this is creating what we call the school family. You know, in the United States, we've used kind of a factory model of education. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, certainly a factory is about getting rid of the widgets that aren't uh, meet the standard, mm -hmm. which is not what we want to do in education. So the family is based on the notion that we want optimal, optimal development of each person, even the parents. Uh, and that means not everybody gets the same thing. You know, my brother didn't do the same things I did and my parents didn't demand it. So if I needed something extra, I got it. So we work on this family model and we build it with routines and rituals in the class and all this. And so uh, this uh, one child, 
And so uh, let me back up. So we use the family, the culture in the classroom to help each, each child. So my job is to keep the children safe. The children's job is to help keep it safe. That means they got to help each child be successful. So this isn't a competition. We're going to help each child. The first thing I teach teachers is when anyone is distressed in the, in the school, anyone, principal down to a four-year-old, everyone in the school is to breathe a belly breath and do uh, what I call wishing well, which is moving the energy to your heart and uh, kind of sending out uh, the energy of love. There's a more technique to it, but for the short version. So you're supposed to breathe and wish well. Okay, so that's the first thing you teach everybody. So if a kid starts reading and goes, <coughs> everybody in the class is supposed to breathe and wish well. If a child goes off the deep end and throws a chair, you breathe and wish well. Okay, so I walk into this classroom, and this child who most people were aware of was throwing a huge, huge rage tantrum in the middle of the room and the kids had backed off as they known to do they backed off to surround the room so that in case he threw things or which he did so they backed to the side of the room and they would all start breathing and wishing well so the kid in the middle and of course they call for the principal and they push the panic button and all the you know the counselors come as as procedure and so i was with the principal that day we walked in so he was throwing and, and just screaming and everyone's breathing and wishing him well. The whole class is taking these deep, slow, breaths, deep, slow breath. And that pulled him. Uh, we teach him about pulling them from the survival state to the emotional state. The survival state is more uh, throwing and that in the emotional state, you get to the mouth. Well, this was in a second grade classroom. So he starts to stops throwing things. And then he gets up to his mouth and he's just cussing, you know, mm. shut the effing up, you this and that. And so the principal with me started to get triggered by that. And a mm. little second year old girl runs up to the principal and says, don't stop now. We've almost got him. <laughs> and, and so I just thought it was wonderful that the kids recognized that, she, that this yeah. child had moved up up you know they come from a survival state to more of an emotional state and if we just stay with them he'll get to that executive state state then we can clean up you know work together to help him put the room back together and then he can go and learn some new skills uh which we set up in what we uh we transformed in school suspension so he goes into uh to keep working on how to manage his triggers mm, that's a great story thank you for sharing that it was a fun one. I mean, and there's many like that, but uh, it's lovely to see the the children helping each other and using what they've learned and their skills to teach the next one. And that's what we do. We call it a pay it forward process. As soon as a mm -hmm. child learns how to do something, they're giving the opportunity to teach it to others. And yeah. whether it's breathing or or or, or I don't like it when you push me, walk around me, whatever skill that child learns, they're required to teach others. And if you're nine, if you're 16 and never learned the skill, then you go and teach younger kids and we buddy classes up. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm sure Kay has some questions about that. But I had to ask you, uh, Becky, one of the questions we get asked quite often about 
having inclusive classrooms where you have these kids as part of mainstream classrooms is the impact the behavior of the child has on the rest of the children and teachers really get caught up in how unfair it is for the others and how do you actually manage it what is your take on that um how do you see the program kind of addressing those concerns well we do have that belief too that uh, disruptive children are disrupting learning which is uh, depends on how narrowly defined you you, you use this, the the term learning. Mm. So uh, if you broaden it to include social emotional learning, mm. then these opportunities when you have disruptive children in your class, a child that does uh, uh, lose control, that's an opportunity for the team, everyone in that classroom, how to gain control. It's mm. just like we have a magic math lesson just popped up in the classroom so this program doesn't do quote lessons uh, conscious discipline is more of a practice there's no prescriptive lessons there's seven skills seven hours and some structures in the classroom to remind you to use them because they're not your strong suit and so when a child misbehaves when a child pushes someone when a child is inattentive when a child is doing all these things, those are opportunities for a teachable moment for a child in that classroom, how to do it. So I would never want to walk out in the hall, quote, to discipline a child, no more, no more than I would like to take a child outside the hall and teach him remedial math. There's probably a child in that classroom who has that same math question or that same math problem. And... Uh, so that's how I address it with teachers. Once you can see that disruption is an opportunity to teach and you have the skills to teach in that moment, then life becomes a lot easier for the teacher and the student. And yeah. they start believing it because as they teach in that moment, moment they're teaching in a, a brain-dependent state. So the child can actually start changing that behavior because they're taught a skill they need in the state that the skill is missing. Yeah, I love that, that reframe. That makes oh. sense. Absolutely, yeah. I love how you said magical social emotional lesson, <laughs> to be told. Um, I think yeah, that's part of the way to think about it. Because if you think about it, uh, when a child is calm, we're teaching them lessons to use when they're upset. Mm. So if you understand how the brain works, when I'm calm, and I don't need to understand the brain, I just need to know my own, I just need to reflect on myself. When yeah. I'm calm and uh, organized, I am a very delightful person. And mm. I live my values and I'm very wise and you can teach me many things. But when I'm upset, I lose hold of my cherished values. I become a different person. And you can't teach me anything because I'm going to be right. Um, so uh, we need to get children in a state in which they can learn. So conscious discipline is about that upgrading, the skills to get you to upshift so that your brain is organized enough to learn. And as you're organizing it, you're teaching them the social emotional skills they'll need for life and they can access them in a state or change their state to be who they want to be. So that's the, the kind of magic of making uh, empowering teachers to respond. And almost that response a teacher gives is quote, 
the medicine. So we don't have to medicate as many children if we can learn to respond to them because our body has a pharmacy within it. We just get that dopamine and stuff moving. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you, Becky. Kay, did you have any questions for Becky just about that anecdote or any of the management strategies? No, I think I think it was actually, I guess I sort of answered it myself um, listening. I was thinking about, um, again, um, situations where I've been in as a behaviour support teacher and, and trying to, you know, avert suspension and um, coming up against the, well, you know, if I've got to teach them skills, when am I going to get the time to do that sort of attitude? But I, I really take on board how if you flip their thinking and they look at the behaviour as a teachable moment, those teachable moments are integral, integral to all their practice during the day. So there is no need to make extra time. It just is, you know. It just is exactly. your daily practice. It becomes your daily practice for all children, any teachable moment. So it's not about giving them something else to do and how will I find the time? I've got 25 other kids and all of that sort of stuff that we get a lot. So... But we will continue to get that unless we can get them to genuinely see these um, demonstrations of behaviour as teachable moments. And once they get that, that question shouldn't even arise in their mind because it's just what they do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. how it works. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. That's, okay. yeah. So I sort of answered my own question by listening to you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and interesting that you said that, Kay. So... One of the things I'm working on now is uh, a lot of research because when you look at a traditional uh, random, random controlled research studies, they want to know how much was your intervention? You know, was your intervention yes. 30 minutes a day? Was it an hour a day? Was it this? And we've had problems getting universities to play ball with us for, for many years, remember we started this 20 years ago, um, because it doesn't fit the paradigm. And when you then submit your article to be published, it's like, or they're like, well, how much was the intervention? Well, it was all day. Mm. <laughs> for and some you don't kids. have a, a cut and dried pre-data, post-data intervention sort of. Right, because yeah. the, your curriculum comes off the bus or, or shows up with the parents or walks to school. That's your curriculum. So what, what upsetting moments, what interpersonal conflicts, did someone call someone stupid? Did someone push someone? Is someone daydreaming over by the, you know, all that stuff that happens in a social group. And remember, the, uh, and the brain develops through the safety, the connection, and the problem solving in social settings. And so... As we use those social settings for all this, we are making changes so rapidly in very, very difficult children. It's amazing. The hardest part of this whole game is it takes some time for the teachers to learn the skills. And the reason they're willing to take the time in the United States is, one, they're in schools where they're desperate. The behaviors are so bad, they've tried everything on the planet and we're the last phone call you make. Or they realize that they can use these same skills first to regulate themselves 
second to be to use with their own children and then third with the children at their school and their coworkers. So every relationship in their life improves. And so I tell them, how would you like to be paid to go to a workshop that will improve every relationship in your life? And all we got to do is like any other skill, like if we were teaching golf, we got to motivate them to leave that time and want to hit a bucket of balls at the driving range. We just got to motivate you enough, give you enough information and a few skills to start practicing with that you were motivated enough to change your own life so that you can change the lives of others. Yeah. That's fantastic. I think that's a lot of motivation for people listening to keep going. Um, it is for me. It is for me. <laughs> I mean, I know that, uh, you know, I'm working on myself all the time. Speaking of working on ourselves, how do you think educators employing trauma-sensitive practices like the conscious discipline, Becky, how do you think they're different compared to other teachers in terms of how they take care of themselves or take care of each other in the schools? Oh my gosh, it, it's, uh, you know, this is, I'm not going to give you the heavy data, but when you walk into a, 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 a conscious discipline school or a school using something that uh, removes that sense of threat as the motivating force in the, in the, in the school, when you remove threat and fear, threat relies, uh, when you're relying on fear to motivate and keep children, quote, under control, You've got to have credible levels of threat at all places, similar to here where you see. Recall from fear, just simply to, to love. You have to have credible models. So now we're going from a credible level of threat to all these credible models of someone that you like admire. Now, once you get to be the model, you're doing phenomenal things with and for each other. The feel in the school changes. Teachers are working together. They might see uh, an opportunity to teach with this child and a very difficult one, and they'll come together and brainstorm ways to help this child. The cafeteria people, the, the custodians, the, and we have bus drivers here. The bus drivers are all on board. Everybody's in this. It's a whole family dedicated to helping each other be successful. You feel it. You see it. Uh, and, of course, the, the academics start soaring. The byproduct of that is academic success. We have never gone into any district school and touched one thing about the curriculum. And every school, a majority of them go from, we grade ours in the United States, A, B, C, D, F. We mostly work with D and F schools, and within a year and a half, they go from an F to a B or an A in their academics, and we don't touch curriculum at all. Yeah, that is fascinating, and it speaks, it's so powerful, isn't it, the attention to relationships and social-emotional learning in terms of its impact on the kids and their lives. And you know, the, uh, I'm going to just add one more thing if I can. Uh, you know, the, if you look at the research and read it kind of deeply, when you look at family research, uh, the impact of the relationship of the, of the adults in charge of the family, mm -hmm. their relationship abilities have more impact 
on the child's ability to self-regulate than the adult to child's relationship. So that means if I transfer that over to school, the adults in the school can't be gossiping about each other. They can't be uh, uh, trashing kids in the, in, in the, and they have to be respectful of one another mm. first before we can ever start addressing our children. Just like in the family, if we can get that top unit on board, uh, the children are going to, you know, trudge right along. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Thank you, Becky. This has been such a privilege. Kay, did you have any final questions or comments? for no, um, just, no, just to say thank you. It's wonderful. It gives us another, another revisit of a, you know, different, different perspective and a different way of looking at something that we know to be so critical. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. You are so welcome. And, uh, and if I could, uh, there are some resources that teachers might want to look at and they would be on the website at consciousdiscipline.com and some places I can guide them to that are free. We have a lot of free resources on our website uh, to the point, I think this last year we had over 5 million views. So one of them's called Schubert School and these are all free and mm -hmm. Schubert's Home. So for parents, they can go look at Schubert's home and for uh, teachers. And again, we're focusing mostly on elementary. So that goes up to like 12 years here in the United States, 11, 12, and we start at zero. So uh, this might not be the ideal place for the high school people. Uh, but if you go to the school, uh, it has over 360 videos and you go to a classroom and you click on pieces of the classroom and you'll see videos of it in action. So I think that would be very helpful. And we also have a place called free resources that show you how to kind of do some things that, uh, and how, how to use them. So I think that would be a very helpful thing for teachers if they want to take a look, see and see what we're talking about and what it looks like in action. And you can see it with different ages with special needs, inclusive classrooms, children with autism. It looks a different, a little bit different, but, uh, it gives you a look-see. That's fantastic. We'll put all those resources up on the show notes. Um, I, I forgot to ask you, Becky, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. What are you currently curious about in your work at the moment? Right now, actually, I am focused on the research. We've got now, now after 20 years, we've got about four or five universities playing with us. And I want to get more research on how that adult change impacts the child. So uh, we've, we're working with some universities and I'm excited that we've got a, a new paradigm to assess from. And uh, it's been a long time coming, but I'm so deeply excited uh, about what we're doing now in the, regards to the, the research and, and looking at executive functions, the self-regulation, but not just in the children, but in the adults and, uh, um, so I'm excited. Uh, and uh, I, sometimes, you know, when you do this after so many years, you kind of get into little moments of lull. I just came out of a lull. So I'm <laughs> rejuvenate and uh, think I have a, maybe a couple more years in me now. Oh, that's great. Um, we hope it's many more years. Thank yes, you for all your work and your service. And we'll keep an eye out for that research as well. Thank you very much, Becky. Thank you. Thank you, Given. Thank you, Kay. Appreciate Thank this you. so much. That was our interview with Dr. Becky Bailey. 
and about her program, Conscious Discipline. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.